0: Hi, my name is Safwan Javid. I'm from Widemouth Mason, and you're listening to Talkin' Blues.
1: I'm gonna start with your background. Um, what's your background?
0: In terms of um, like my parents and yeah, stuff? Yeah, yeah, so they immigrated from Pakistan. Uh, well, my father from Pakistan, my mother too, but she, her roots are in Kashmir. Um, and so I was born and raised here.
1: Yeah, but because I, you were born uh, in Charlotte. Right? I was born Charlotte, in Charlotte Prince
0: Edward Island, yeah. yeah. And, and spent most of my life in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, where my parents still live. Um, and, uh, but I have a very strong connection to my Pakistani roots because my mother would take me back every couple of years in my, in my early years.
1: So, tell me how you moved from Charlottetown to Saskatoon.
0: So, my father had uh, done his studies in agriculture. Um, It's partly what brought him to Canada. And his first job was in Charlottetown PEI, and then he was offered another job in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, um, the heartland of agriculture in our country. And so, we moved there, and I I was, I think, just about six years old, and then I spent most of my life there.
1: Do you remember your time in PEI?
0: Very little. I tend to, uh, my wife makes fun of me because I tend to f- forget large chunks of my early years. Um, but fortunately, because of the band, I've been able to go back um, when we're touring and, and visit it. And it, it jogs some memories, but certainly I have a sense of connection to the
1: place. Was it um, of any significance to you moving from Charlottetown to Saskatoon at the age of six?
0: I think I I wasn't probably, maybe I was aware of kind of what was happening and it had some impact on me, but I don't know that I could articulate what that actually was. Um, I do think that moving from one sort of small-ish place to another small-ish place um, probably solidified a lot of what my worldview is and how I look at sort of the ideas of community and um, uh, yeah I guess just my perspective on
1: on the world around us. Right. Yeah. Uh I and I guess I mean we were so much more adaptable when we were younger. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I moved a lot of times when I was young and it didn't seem to bother me until I was like 13 14. Um but it's interesting how you can adapt so quickly and you know you probably lost friends, right? And yeah, that, I think I mean I think
0: I was because it was that age so great or age 5 is when I moved and in Prince Edward Island at least then I don't know if they do know they didn't have kindergarten so it wasn't like I'd already started the journey of who your school friends are going to be right. so I think it was actually perfect timing in that I came to Saskatoon entering grade one and in fact a lot of those people certainly by grade two or three a lot of those people became my friends for the next ten years, and one of those people was Sean Varro, the singer in my band. So that's crazy.
1: Yeah, it is. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so what grade did you meet him?
0: I think grade two, maybe grade three. His he was in a he was in a really cool, forward thinking program called Open School, um, where there they didn't sort of adhere to the strict curriculum based um, educational system that we had. They got to do a lot of, you know, going to the park and talking about poetry and looking at leaves and stuff, which is, I, I joke with him and make fun of him a lot because of it, but I also really am jealous of it. I think it's it was a brilliant thing, and his, his uh, parents were smart enough to put him in that early on, and that, the open school program would shift locations. They weren't based in one school, or I think they were maybe, and then they moved to our school, started housing them in around grade three. So that's when I would have met him. And then that open school program ended in grade four, so then he shifted into our mainstream, and we were classmates. And were you friends instantly? Yeah, right away, because he had just started playing, just started taking guitar lessons. He'd got his first guitar in grade four, um, and similarly, I had gotten my first real drum set in grade four and started taking private lessons as well. So when we knew that each other did that and we joined the school band, um, we also would hang out because we were in the same class and, and in the same peer group, and so the first time I ever played an instrument with someone else was with him in his basement, him on guitar, and I didn't have my drums there. I just, his mother put a bunch of pots and pans out, <laughs> and that was
1: the first time, and, and here we are, I don't know, decades later. Oh, that's is great, because <laughs> th- th- this is the thing that I, I think in terms of music, and I think in terms of bands, and I was in a band, not a good band, and I wasn't very good, but you start... At a young age, you play with somebody else and then you grow up and hopefully you get better. And then it, the band becomes something else. And and oftentimes, by the time I talk to musicians, the band is business and it's not that. So um, that fascinates me that, you know, you've, you've met this guy in grade four yeah. and you're still playing with him. <laughs> it's we we often will. I'd say maybe
0: twice a year we have moments where we kind of stop and 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 remind each other of the, how long have we been doing this together? This is almost ridiculous. like it's it's absurd that that could happen. I mean, I guess it does happen. It makes sense people I, the stories I hear are usually people in like high school bands together. yeah, but the fact that we were in the same school, same grade, started playing at the same time and liked each other. Yeah. And all of that has still lasted, like I said, decades later. Is D- did you guys ever break up? We never broke up. We had, we weren't, we weren't wide mouth Mason in grade four, right? We were just two guys playing in the school assembly if we got a chance. Yeah. Um, but we never. So we went to elementary school together up to grade eight in, in Saskatchewan, then we switched to high school and went to the same high school that had a very strong music program. Partly why both of us went there. Um, and again, kept playing together. Not as much in high school, outside of the school bands, but right. we were in both the concert band and the jazz band together. Um, and then after high school is when the first iterations of Wide Mouth Mason started happening. And he was he started working at a music score, store. I started doing my undergraduate studies. And he said, "Hey, do you want to jam? I got a guy who plays bass. I got another guy who plays guitar. Do you want to meet maybe in your parents' basement?" I said, "Yep." And that was that was really the f- formative bit of wide mouth mason
1: wow so do you have flashbacks ever of you and sean at a really young age just yeah i i clearly recall um
0: the the times in his i remember the first time in his basement i remember um school assemblies so if we would have for example, if the jazz band got to play it during a school assembly, the drum set would already be set up, his guitar and guitar amp would be out because he would play that in a jazz band. In concert he band, he played trumpet. Um, and then when the assembly would end, there was, I remember the first time being allowed him and I to play, um, I think we jammed tequila as the people were filing out and like (laughs) a bunch of our, our classmates were were kind of gathering around us and other people in the school were gathering around us. And that was the first real moment of, I I remember that feeling of playing live for an audience that's pretty focused on one of very few guys that are up there doing it and, and really feeling that immediate sense of um, being rewarded and appreciated and, and just the, the, ego stroke that happens there is is incomparable I think we became addicted to that really quickly
1: how did your love of drums come about
0: so um I was just talking about this the other day with someone asking me a similar question and and I didn't realize this until I was answering them so I'm glad of the timing of this (laughs) um my mother's family was very musical in the sense that they weren't classically trained but they were they were people that came from villages in northern Pakistan and so there's a everyone in the family would sing folk songs and would do folk dancing right right just because a lot of celebrations or family gatherings would would evolve into that Um, and so the the musicality part I think started with being exposed to that and then she got me dancing very early, folk dancing Pakistani folk dancing because in Saskatoon there's a, a festival called the Folk Festival where different community groups set up pavilions so you'll have the Pakistani pavilion and the Scottish pavilion and the Australian pavilion uh, and the and the Afro-Caribbean pavilion and in those pavilions you have food and, and entertainment including dancing and singing and all kinds of things so the Pakistani one was a very small one because we were a small community in Saskatoon But my mother was really into it and would help do a lot of the heavy lifting. And she would bring in people from time to time to teach those of us that lived there how to do traditional folk dances. And I learned quite early on because most of the time those people would stay at our house. Um, And so I think that connection to rhythm dancing is, you know, it's critical to understand rhythm and dancing. I I think you're in big trouble if you don't have that as your foundation. Um, And so I think that's where the the roots of it were is the, the foundational connection to rhythm in music and um, in maybe grade two or three a friend of mine and I went to go see I think it was a hard day's night it was a Beatles movie I think it was a hard day's night and there was some line in it where someone tried to touch Ringo's drums and one of the other guys I can't remember which one said oh don't touch Ringo's drums he doesn't let anyone touch his drums and for some reason I still can't figure out why but that resonated with me and from that moment on I would ask my parents if I could get a drum set at least once a week until they finally caved in. And that was maybe within a year of that.
1: Was there, other than the Pakistani folk music, Yeah. was there other musics that you were listening to that, that might've inspired you to want to play the drums? I guess Beatles, maybe. Beatles, maybe. I mean, I don't, I wasn't actively a Beatles listener at whatever
0: age I was, grade two. Um, I think just something about that movie and that moment in it just got me. Um, but I think a really important piece of Pakistani and Indian music is the rhythmic bass, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. It's a really critical piece of how music is structured there. Um, and so I think subconsciously that that went, that wove itself quite deeply throughout my, my brain. Um, but I didn't start getting to sort of expand outside of that musical um, background until I got to the age where I was actively looking to get my own records instead of just listening to what my parents were listening to. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the first record I owned was Run DMC Raising Hell, and the second record I owned was, I think, Michael Jackson Thriller. It might have been a Sammy Davis Jr. album, one of those two. And again, you know, all of those are rhythmically-based types of music, so I think there was something to that, but I also feel like the initial lessons I took um, in learning how to play drums, I had good teachers in that they were very supportive and gave me a lot of positive reinforcement, and that just that pushes you. I think the children respond really well. Same with adults, I guess. Respond really well to positive reinforcement, and so I think the first few lessons felt
1: right, and, and that was it. Wow. Did, were you instantly passionate about the drums once you got it? Because it's not an easy instrument to master. Yeah, I think... I don't. That's a really difficult question. I think I
0: probably was instantly passionate, but I think that passion waned from time to time mm-hmm. throughout my life. Um, and I'd have long stretches where it was borderline. I was disinterested, but maybe because of muscle memory, or just because it's it was a thing that was so second nature to me. By the time I was, you know, a few years in, it was still always a constant. It would just be less dominant from time to time right which makes sense
1: yeah um was there a time was there a moment where you learned something that you thought oh my god this is amazing on the drums yes so um i can give you a couple of those
0: one was in those lessons i didn't realize it at the time i my teacher early on taught me to do what some people call a press roll or a buzz roll Mm -hmm. and um on the snare drum. And I, I went and tested for uh, a marching band. I think it was the Kiwanis or the Kinsmen, Anyway, some marching band in Saskatoon. And I was quite young to be testing for it. But my, a close friend of mine, his father was the conductor of the senior version of that band. Um, and so he encouraged me to do it. And I remember him commenting to the, the conductor of the junior band, which I was trying out for, that, look, he can do a buzz roll. And, I, and so I did the buzz roll. And so I guess I, I realized retroactively, I'm like, oh, that's a thing that I can do that apparently yeah. is, a, is an important thing. So I kind of felt retroactively good about that. <laughs> um, but I, I also remember in grade, same guy actually, his, he moved away, he was a close friend of mine, but he moved away and he came back one summer to visit and he had just discovered Led Zeppelin. And so he brought me a Led Zeppelin tape and I, I took it from him and I spent the better part of that summer trying to play along with it. And which,
1: which album, the first album?
0: I think it was four. Okay. No, it was one. You're right, it was one. Okay. Um, and it was really hard to play along with at, at the stage I was at. Um, but I remember as soon as I was a- actually able to to stick to the beat and do some of the fills and, and remember some of the moves, that there was this feeling of empowerment and confidence that
1: it just boosted me forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great feeling to be able oh, to play something. It's right? Incredible. So tell me about how, so the so when the band started, what did you have in mind? Like, what would have been the goal for the band? So we started as, um, it wasn't called Widemouth
0: Mason to start with. What happened was, in, in right after um, high school, as I'd mentioned, Sean called a bunch of us to get together to start jamming, and we did. And he was working in a music store and through that music store gig, he um, plugged into another network of people that were doing uh, cover band tours across Saskatchewan, Alberta, and BC and all of the rural places, the smallest of small places. Right. And the guy who kind of headed that up recruited Sean to say, hey, why don't you come try do a two week stint with us? We're going to, to um, the Northwest Territories. We're going to do a house gig for two weeks. Um, And so he said, sure, I'll do it. And he took off and he came back and, you know, obviously it was, there were some challenges in that first time going off to do something like that. You're playing three sets a night. You're doing a bunch of songs that, you know, you've tried to learn, but have you, if you've never played them before in front of people, it's a whole different game. Um, But he started doing that and it went well enough that he got to regularly start doing that. And by the time that year ended, it was maybe, Maybe he was doing six to eight months of that. The next summer rolled around, and he got um, our former bassist Earl and I to come and do a stint of those because the regular band couldn't do it. And, and we, these are all covers or are you just starting all to covers? It? Okay. All covers. Actually, I think he got me to do it alone first because their drummer couldn't do it. And uh, and again, really, just a total different experience than anything I'd ever done before. Playing in a bar that's expecting you to, you know. Make that John Cougar Mellencamp song sound like that John Cougar Mellencamp song. Did you like it? How did you view that experience? I, I, yeah, I think I did. There was a lot of fear involved because, A, I'm a, um, I'm a racialized person and going to really small places in Western Canada. Right. So there's some sense of, you know, I think I'm the only person here who is a racialized person in this bar. So, you know, you're a
1: little bit on guard. Um, Are and, you on guard? And I hope you don't mind me asking, but are you on guard because you've had experiences or negative experiences or are you on guard just because you're careful? Uh,
0: Because I've had those experiences and I've seen others have them, too. So and even in those doing those circuits, there was, a you know, from time to time, there would be things, some more subtle and some less subtle. Right. Um, But by and large, I will say there were very positive experiences. And I think the, the most critical thing was, well, two most critical pieces from that were one identifying as a musician who was out there doing this Mm -hmm. as opposed to a guy playing in my basement. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that again was another boost in confidence and eventually being able to pull it off. You know, at first the the gigs didn't go very well for me, but they got better (laughs) quickly. Um, and I think that was critical too, to, to my confidence. Um, and then, and then, too, just the actual skills you develop by being put in that situation—you really do. It's it sink or swim, and and if you're if you're going to swim, you very quickly develop your chops. You very quickly develop the ability to, you know, have some kind of reliable meter. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the important pieces
1: of, of being a functional drummer in a pro band. Right. Wow. Um, when you finished that stint, did you? think positively about the idea? Like, Did you think, let's go out on the road again? Or did you, how did you view that? Yeah,
0: so by the time that summer ended, I was still in university. And by that time, our bass player, who started in university but then dropped out, um, was now doing that with Sean as well. And so when I would go back to university, um, September through April, they would get other people to play drums and still doing that cover circuit. And then the next summer would roll around and I'd go back on the road with them. Um, after a couple of those, I was on the verge of finishing my undergrad degree, and I convinced my parents to let me change what my major was to finish early and The plan had always been at that point my and I think my dad had been drilling it into my head early on that I should go to law school okay so i uh by the time I've done two summers of those and and of those stints where I'm on the road with those guys, I realized that this is a thing I want to keep doing because it's a lot of fun Um, and because I feel I'm feeling that self-confidence I'm feeling you know like a real musician so I convinced my parents that let me just try this for a year it's like a what how but how did your parents feel about you doing this not great they didn't mind me going out and playing on the road or playing um, in bars in the summers they didn't want to interfere with my studies Um, my mother always pushed me to be musical and and as i would mentioned the folk dancing thing started that but she also was really encouraging in terms of playing music i think she wanted violin but had to settle for drums <laughs> um but yeah they didn't they weren't they weren't that welcoming of the idea um you know so i should rewind a bit by the time we're in that second or third summer of doing that we've started to take on a bit of a life of our own the three of us sometimes we'd have a fourth member um but by and large, it becomes just the three of us. And that's the real true birth of Wiedemouth Mason. Because we start now sneaking in original songs. And we start moving... Even before sneaking in original songs, we start moving into the blues circuit more. The blues bar circuit. Right.
1: And there's a healthy blues bar circuit. Very healthy, absolutely. Like and lucky. especially in
0: those days. Right. In those days, this is like the early to mid-90s. It was a great circuit. I mean, grungy bars. Right. Um, grungier accommodations. But... <laughs> But a really, um, a really strong appetite for live blues. But are you thinking, man, we can get into the blues circuit and play blues bars? No, we weren't thinking that at all. I okay. think we just were playing and 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 we were doing those cover bars. And whenever a song like "The Thrill Is Gone" by BB King would sneak in there, or it would be part of the the yeah. set list, we just kind of all felt really connected. To or some Stevie Ray Vaughan songs, you know, where you could pull those off in those rooms. Yeah, yeah, and. Those were always the funnest to play. Those were always the ones that all of us felt the most excited about. And so we started learning more and more of the blues catalog. And that became kind of our bread and butter. And automatically then we um, gravitated towards those blues bars and they gravitated towards us. So, you know, blues on white in Edmonton or our buds in Saskatoon, the Yale back in the day in Vancouver, um, King Eddie in Calgary. And so now we're playing um, three sets of blues. And, and blues audiences are really great to play for because they're very open-minded. And mm-hmm. that's where we start sneaking in originals here and there. And those start going quite well. And now from that, a buzz starts to happen. And back in those days, the major labels in Canada had a lot of regional offices and people with ears to the ground. Um, not just for doing publicity and promo, but for actually doing A and R listening to what's happening and kind of reporting back. And so the major labor labels start to show interest. And that's why at that point is the first sort of formulation of my thought of, Hey, this could actually be a thing. This isn't just like my summer gig, right? This isn't me, you know, painting houses for my summer job. This is actually a thing potentially. My parents didn't think that. (laughs) Um, So I convinced them to give me a chance and, they had uh much so you asked for one year? I asked for a year. I said give okay. me a year. All right. Not really thinking it through like I probably should have asked for more, <laughs> but um uh, one thing worked against me in that and that was that someone had written a, a local in a local paper about us some a, a piece and they had mentioned how you know we didn't make much money doing that. We yeah, had yeah. enough money to kind of put gas in the van, go to the next gig and eat really bad food. And so I think someone had mentioned in the interview that we had, you know, sometimes we ate donuts for that would be our dinner. And my mom read that and just was horrified and in tears and telling me, why didn't you tell me I would make sure you have food? I'm like, it's not, I don't think it's a literal, maybe once I did that, but I was, you know, I'm 19. I was probably going to do that anyway. Right. Um, but the thing that started working in our favor is within that year, the labels are showing interest, and so is so are mainstream uh, media outlets, and c- including CBC.
1: And these guys are still really young at this point. Yeah, like twenty one, maybe. Right, and then so you decide to do like an indie release, do you not?
0: Yeah, so we, we, we the guy who had first put us out there in those cover bars had he lived on a, in a on a farm in rural Alberta, and in his barn he had set up a home studio. And so we kind of got the run of it. We were allowed to go in there and record when we, were, when we had any time off. And so we did. We recorded our indie record and put that out. And so that, combined with all these other things kind of happening, um, I, yeah, created a bit of momentum. And, and then the labels came calling. And then you re-recorded that first album? Kind of. We, we re-recorded, rearranged, reworked the songs from that indie album. But right. if you listen to them, they're quite different.
1: But it was really well accepted very quickly.
0: The the indie or the first major label. The was, first major label. Yeah, it got it received. Um, it received a really great response. There it, it was there was a lot of critical acclaim. Um, it we developed a fan base quite quickly. We got radio play.
1: Did um, that surprise you? I mean, I don't I don't know
0: how it's such a weird thing, you know? Like, so signing with the major label, I was the most skeptical of the band. Like, I I kind of came from a sense of. My parents have a really sort of social justice background right. and they're activists. And so what comes with that sometimes is a, is a real um, suspicion of m- multinational corporations. Yeah. And so the labels struck me as those, right? Even though really like Warner Music Canada, yes, it's affiliated with, with Warner globally, but it's its own functioning entity. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, there's a suspicion of anything corporate. And so I was quite hesitant to go down that road, but in meeting with um, the the guys who came out to see us, Dave Tollington and Kim Cook, um, we realized that no, these are music fans. Like they get it, and they they're here because they think what we're doing musically is worthwhile and is something that should be promoted and should be put out there. Um, so, so yeah, I think when you when you put your music out, it's uh, you probably won't admit it when you're young, but now I think I can admit it, you're, it's a really scary thing to do because you don't know how people are going to react to it. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially you're you're exposing yourself and, and making yourself quite vulnerable to let
1: other people then comment on your creative output. Right. Um, I mean, the other part of it, and this is the part that I find fascinating, in some ways, when you have a major label back you up, they put a lot of resources, money behind it. And in some ways, that can often mean that the band is in debt, not not physically in debt, but in, technically in yeah. debt, immediately because they put in hundreds of thousands of dollars behind promotion or whatever sure. or the recording. So it takes a lot of sales until you guys see the money. Was was that ever an issue? Like in terms of, I mean, it gives you the reach and it gives you more access, but in some ways it gives you the potential of more debt.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting. That's an interesting question. I'll I'm gonna expose some of. Uh, our, the uniqueness of our situation at that time. So we signed with Warner and we actually negotiated um, an unusual deal in that we had the option to pay for our own masters, to pay for our own recordings, which would give us a higher royalty rate. Right. Um, and it also meant technically we own the masters, although there is another clause in it that effectively makes that sort of <laughs> useless and that they get to control it for the life of copyright. Right. So it's kind of useless to own it. But back in those days, it was this important thing. to Own your own masters yeah, if yeah, you yeah, can. But, sure. but very rarely does a starting band have the leverage to be able to say that or, or do that. Um, so anyway, we, we had this
1: deal where we could fund our own recordings. So how did you know to make that deal? Was it because of your... I don't know how much how deep you were into law at this point, but was it your business sense or not at all? <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll get
0: to law school, but that was uh, that was a response to my lack of business sense. Um, they we had advisors with us. We had a mentor with us um, that we had that we had met during those kind of blues bar years, um, who himself was a great guitar player and became a great and close friend of the band, like basically a big brother would expose us to new music right. would you know go deep down uh, rabbit holes of, of various bands and guitar players and songs um and he also happened to have um inherited a bunch of money that he wanted to invest in us wow and so because we knew that our manager thought okay this is an opportunity to potentially leverage some better deal points with the label because we don't need them to pay for this upfront. So having said all that, it meant that we weren't in a huge unrecouped um, uh, negative balance with the label because we had this loan, but we also owed that money back to the person who loaned it to us. And with with a music label or with a record label, you can have an unrecouped balance. You don't owe them that out of pocket in that like, if I get another job, I don't need to pay them that money back. It's only from my music activities that that's owed and from those that were caught by the deal. Right. Whereas the, the deal with a private lender like our friend is, you, it's a loan. You do owe them that money back. So, yeah, knowing all that now, I'd kind of I'd maybe want to go back to myself and say, you know, think this through. Does it really make sense? But how could you know? Yeah, you don't. <laughs> and, and having said that, like, you know, I, I also recognize that, well, maybe it's because the label wasn't in huge debt for us that they kept putting our records out and and doing a, a fairly decent job of promoting us right. because some sometimes what ends up happening is if they've put a bunch of money in and they aren't reaching whatever threshold they need to to feel like this is a positive
1: investment they'll just pull the plug yeah and and probably quicker and quicker these days than back then right? absolutely um but things started moving really quickly for you and you were like the most promising band and 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 you were getting a lot of singles out there. You are yeah. getting coverage on much music. What was that like? At the time, it just
0: felt normal. Because we were so young and because everything in our eyes had... I guess when you're sitting there, you don't think it's moving quickly. Um, you, again, you just think it's normal. This is the normal pace of things. But now reflecting back on it, we had all these things kind of happen in the course of three to four years. You know, Going from literally playing in the basement to... Charting at radio nationally, yeah. playing in Switzerland at the Montreal Jazz Festival, playing with the Rolling Stones, playing with um, AC/DC, ACDC, ZZ Top. It's like it just felt like, oh, this is how it goes. We thought that's what happens when things go well for you in music. It just kind of goes like this, and it keeps going like this. Right. Okay. Which, um, which we learned it doesn't, by the way. But,
1: <laughs> but in that time when when things are going well, yeah. was there ever? Um, doubt about what you were doing? I know that's silly cuz things are going well, but did you ever question what you were doing when things are going really well? In terms of musical output? Um
0: just as a career choice. Not as a career choice. As a career choice, I think I was feeling quite confident in what I had done, and I think all of us had. I you know, I I say this often that Sean was meant to be a musician. If any if there's anything that decides what we're meant to be, then He's was meant to be a musician. That's his that's who he is at really? his very core. I'm not so sure about that with me, although in those years I felt like, yeah, this
1: is the thing I should be doing and this is this feels right. Okay, so when things are going really well, your parents see this. Yeah. What are they thinking now?
0: So by luckily within that year that I'd referenced <laughs> earlier Which is
1: crazy that it things yeah, happen right? that
0: quickly. It is. Um <laughs> Within that year, there's enough positive momentum in terms of sources that they listen to, like the CBC are talking about us. Right. And so that that's validating this choice, right? In their eyes, it's like, oh, you're on the CBC. That must mean yeah. you're doing quite well. Um, and similarly, they have, again, they were quite uh, active in the social justice community in Saskatoon. And so... People within that community are starting to hear about us and figuring out that these are my parents. And so, you know, a couple of their friends will reference, Hey, I heard your son's band, blah, 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 saying really positive things. So I think there's enough um, positive uh, input coming to them about our band that they feel like, okay, maybe this is okay. And they stop giving me the pressure. of, oh, you know the the, the countdown Years is over. off. It's okay. Having said that, it was still oh, even at the peak of our success, my father was still saying to me. So, have you thought about when you're going to go back? In his mind, it was always like you're going to go back. It's funny that I did end up going back. I at that point thought, there, I'm, this is my life. I'm not going to go back and do anything else. This is it. I'm going to be making music and only making music forever. Yeah. Well, you are technically
1: still making music, right? Just not only making. Yeah, music, yeah, yeah. Um, when it was going really well, did it surprise you, or what did you learn from that? I know you're just riding along, and things are going well, and you think this is the way it should be. But what was the greatest lesson you learned from that oh, ride? Wow. That's a great question. What's the greatest lesson? Um, I
0: think probably the greatest lesson is don't take it for granted, and understand that it's this is just a moment, and that the next moment may not be this. And if you can stay even-keeled throughout all of that,
1: um, you're much more likely to survive it. Right. Uh, But, you know, when all those things are happening, how does it not get to your head? It does get
0: to your head. I don't know. I don't know anyone whose head it doesn't get to or didn't get to that I saw anyway. Certainly within our band, it was, again, all of us just thought this is how it's supposed to be. I think I was probably the most... Maybe, maybe I shouldn't say probably. Maybe I was the most sort of emotionally dependent on the minutiae of it, so that if a song went out and charted really well, and the next one didn't chart as well, I would, I would, it would really get to me. It would really bother me. Or if you know a show wasn't sold out and packed and people really into the into what we were doing, I'd be down about it and I'd, I, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd mope about and it affected me really negatively. How, in the, even in the peak of it
1: right how did that change? I don't know that it has <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think <laughs> I think because I'm less because it's no longer my sole source of identity um, or my my yeah I'll, I'll leave it at that my sole source of identity I think um, I'm able to put it into perspective right. and and the point I made about appreciating it and understanding what you have, um, I think only now am I coming close to actually doing that. Now I feel like we, if we go out and do a show, regardless of how many people are there or how they're reacting, of course I like it a lot more if it's packed and they're mm-hmm. really into it. It's, it's a rush. It's a rush like no other. But even if it's not that, I appreciate the fact that, that anyone at all wants me to come and play music for them and how privileged I am to be in that position.
1: Do you think that's maturity? Do you think that's just because of where you've been?
0: Maybe. Yeah, certainly because of where I've been. Maybe that's maturity. Maybe some people have that early on because they're mature early on. Um,
1: I think it's it's forced humility is what it is. Well, I mean, it's pretty amazing, though, what you guys did accomplish. And we're not just talking one hit wonder here. We're talking a lot of singles and a lot of exposure and a lot of big concert tours.
0: Yeah, I mean I look I I now I appreciate all those things immensely. I f- I feel like what a what a great set of opportunities I had and experiences I had that not only did I get to go see a bunch of different places in the world I got to do so in the vehicle of making music yeah. and having people pay to come listen to that or pay to consume it in some way shape or form but what a what a unique and thrilling experience that is. It's humbling. Um, yeah, I, I consider myself extremely lucky.
1: So I, I imagine that there are a lot of moments, maybe not a lot of moments, but there are moments when you're just wandering around and these images, once again, flashbacks come to your head and and not only being in the basement with Sean, yeah. grade six or whatever, but these amazing moments of playing at the Montreal Jazz Festival opening up for the Rolling Stones or whatever do, do these things just pop up in your mind all the time and if so what pops up more frequently I don't know that they pop up randomly
0: I think my my brain has after having kids and and having had a, a full life my brain's capacity is quite low, so <laughs> there's always instead of those things popping into my head, there's usually thoughts like, "I wonder if I should buy milk today because we might have <laughs> run out." Now, but when when I'm in the right context, right, um, when I'm in a, a in a conversation about music and my career in music, yeah, then those things come come flooding back, and uh, and there's not any one specific thing. It's just this this. It's almost like a blur of all of them. That feeling of sitting behind the kit and looking out and and the interesting perspective that that is because as a drummer you're at the at least in our configuration i'm at the back of the Mm -hmm. stage and so from there's nothing behind me usually except maybe a backdrop but there's no real action behind me so it's this really interesting thing of and i'll I'll sometimes it, it consciously strikes me when it's actually happening where i just sit down for the for the first song the beginning of the set and i look up and i gradually see my drums in front of me the cymbals in front of that my bandmates in front of that and then the audience and the venue and it's just like it it, it almost feels like I'm waking up to something every time that that happens wow. and and that image or set of images is I think the thing that will be with me forever you know when I'm dying I'll, I'll I think I'll have an
1: image of that that well, oh, that's Quite a powerful image. Like I, you know, most people don't get to experience that, or to open up for ACDC or for the Rolling Stones. I mean, that's
0: it. It's <laughs> yeah. It's uh. I don't think I'd actually thought that through until we until you brought that up and kind of made me think about it. But yeah, that's that. I think that
1: that captures it for me. Okay, so at one point or another, you said things changed. What was that like? Difficult.
0: It's uh. So our first album did extremely well our second album now looking on it looking back on it also did extremely yeah, yeah. well but it didn't do as well as the first album so it, su- it suddenly felt like for the first time when you're in the sort of center of it it felt to us like or to me like oh we're sliding this isn't the direction it's supposed to go it's supposed to keep going up because bear in mind up until that point everything had got had improved on the previous situation yeah, yeah. and so that was a strange feeling but, you know, you also, we had, we were really into studying kind of music history and everything that happened before us. So you recognize that, yeah, that happens. Albums, some
1: albums do well, some not as well. And that's just kind of and, how it works. And can you, other than that things happen, is there any way of knowing why it might have not done as well? Like, was it less promotion or was it this, you know, did you feel that the second album wasn't as strong as the first album? Or I don't feel it wasn't as strong. In
0: fact, some might say it's stronger, but... I think we have very eclectic tastes uh, Our the band when it was three of us all three of us and certainly now Sean and I have tastes that range mm-hmm. across multiple genres and styles and and to your to your question earlier about a business sense I think we really had a lack of business sense and and now I realize it in talking to our peers and other people that have been doing this that you know a lot of people who make music in a band as pros are very clear about this is what we're we're trying to create and it and and we're and we we need to keep doing that sort of thing and yeah you can move it here and you can move it there but generally it has to maintain um it's sort of um the same brand the same basic underlying idea under all there has to be a common thread that the fan who became a fan of that first album will also be a fan of the second album In fact, and and hopefully that'll just keep growing. And we didn't think like that at all. That wasn't even a a thought in our brains that uh, that that actually exists. Yeah,
1: but maybe that's because that really wasn't you. It wasn't, absolutely. I I think it, it comes from us being
0: purely driven by the fact that we were huge music fans. And so we were, it was almost an internal race of who would bring back what stuff to listen to when we were going to go in the van or in the bus. And and that meant you were going out and doing your research and buying a bunch of CDs and reading a bunch of music magazines and figuring out what else you should check out. Right. And invariably that would then be infused in whatever the next song we wrote was or the next song we, we recorded was. Um, and so... That's, that's a long and circuitous way of saying I think with us what happened was we we wanted we were diverse in terms of what we listened to and that became part of our record catalog so our second album is not that similar to our first album right. and our third album is not that similar to either one of the first two and our fourth album is not that similar to either one of the first three and so for us it's the our body of work and now I'm happy I'm fine with it But I think there was a time where we thought, wow, maybe this is, are we we doing this the wrong way? Because why isn't it working? And so we'd have people saying, you know, you should, you really got to kind of go back to what you did the first time. And it's like, well, yeah, we could, but we don't, we actually don't think we control it that much. We kind of write songs based on whatever we're thinking about. And certainly subconsciously based on what we've been listening to. And whatever comes out, comes out. And we can do a whole bunch of those, and pick and choose out of those what becomes an album. But at the end of the day, it almost feels like it's not in your control. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've heard others, other musicians, say this too, where they say songwriting and and recording and music creation in general, when it when it's going really well and going right, not in terms of commercial success, but just in terms of your your feeling about it and the process. Um, it, it almost feels like you're essentially just documenting what's already there. It's more uncovering something than creating it. I find it
1: interesting because um, if I was to ask you what was your favorite song or what's the best song you've worked on, that might not necessarily be the biggest hit that you had, right? Because Definitely not. Because a hit and yeah. song is such a different thing. And 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 even your fans might say, this is my favorite White Mouth Mason song, but it might not have ever charted. And so it's an interesting thing where, where you get caught up in putting out singles and or putting out albums and seeing where it goes on a chart. But, you know, that's just such a weird thing.
0: It, it, it's not... Our industry is interesting in that no one really knows, has all... No one has the answers, right? It's not mm-hmm. like... You know, making a, a successful album in terms of its commercial appeal is not like building a house where you know if you've been successful at building a house and you know the sort of roadmap to doing that because it's been done a whole bunch and it's quite clear Um, that's not true with I think with any creative based industry it's it's sort of this subjective thing that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't depending on how people react to it I think there's a bunch of factors like how hard is it pushed is radio playing that song a whole bunch I think you know we had success on the songs we did have success with, it was because radio embraced those songs. And right. in, that, in those days, radio was really important in terms of influencing how people listen to music. And music videos too, right? Music videos, huge. Much music was a really important piece of our of our history. And I think, you know, there's something to be said for that idea of if, if you're out there and you don't have the internet to be able to go and look up whatever you want, right. and, and then you're essentially at the mercy of the gatekeepers so whatever radio or much music is playing that's what you're hearing and the 30 songs on rotation at that radio station in a given week um that's what those are your choices yeah so which songs do you like which is so little compared to what's coming
1: out yeah so you go through a tough period was it a really tough period or at one point or another you decide to go back to school yeah, I think so.
0: After our record deal with Warner was, it was a four record deal to, to start with and then they had options to have another two records if they wanted them. And they didn't exercise their option after the fourth record. Right. They had, during the fourth album when we were making it, the guys who were our champions there were both streamed out of Warner right. and they had brought in new um, executives to run the thing. And I think there was some sense of kind of starting fresh and starting new. And I don't know, maybe they just felt like we weren't performing as well as they wanted us to in terms of our numbers. It was also the age of file sharing right. becoming a really common and the okay, industry... From an
1: artist's point of view, how did you view all that that was going on? I had mixed, I had mixed feelings
0: about it. Obviously, you know, from a, a personal interest kind of perspective... Um, The file sharing really hurt because it made the industry contract and the industry flailed around trying to figure out what to do. And we were in the middle of that. We were, I think, caught up in kind of the the outcomes that came from that. Um, Not only did you see the major labels laying off staff, you also saw them dropping acts. Right. Um, As a consumer of music, something felt good about the fact that control was being taken away from a relatively limited number of of gatekeepers, right. and and I think in a way it was like sort of the democratization of access to music. Um, so I think we've we're still kind of we we've been in transition from that for the last how was that twenty years ago eighteen mm-hmm. years ago, um, and I think now maybe we've landed on something with streaming. Although there are a lot of problems in it, um, but yeah, it kind of feels like the pendulum has flowed back to where. Sure anyone can release anything on a streaming platform but you know who opens up on the new music friday page who opens up on the who gets put on the playlist that are listened to the most right. and that's largely determined by a similar system as what there used to be which is the bigger gatekeepers mm-hmm. and maybe that's okay i don't know
1: well i mean it just bothers me how it's devalued
0: music so much it has devalued music that's that i think that was the biggest thing so you had a generation of people that grew up consuming music for free mm-hmm. and that had never happened before that's, yeah. you know, in the history of music recording industry right? the history of that you've never had an era where, it's, where you're giving away the product for free and that's what happened right. so you have this generation of people who grew up with their baseline being why would you pay for music that doesn't make any sense yeah. which is crazy that it's nuts think, right yeah. I look back to my like CD buying days and my the budget if I had budgeted for it it was nutty it, like it was probably eating up 50% of the money I made yeah yeah for sure easily yeah so yeah it's it's. I think we're recovering from that but yeah I hope I hope the pendulum swings further over to where it's able to make money again without losing too much of the the, the reset that was that
1: democratization But that has led, this change has led you going just back to school. How difficult was that? So by the time I got,
0: we do our fourth album and Warner doesn't exercise his option. So now we're independent and we go and make a new album. But you still have a fan base. We still have a fan base. We still go out and tour. It's still a thing. Right. It's still the only thing all of us are doing. Right. Um, and so we put out our fifth album uh, on, a, on an indie label called Curve. And we're still in that state of the industry isn't stable yet. right? It's still, it still has been rocked. This is like 2003, I want to say. Um, and so after that, I kind of come to this realization of, okay, we've been doing this for a long time we would do, you know, some years we were doing up to 200, 230 shows in a wow. year. And that's a lot of time spent with a relatively small group of people that mm-hmm. you're with 24-7. And it's also been emotionally taxing. That was probably the biggest part of it. It was really emotionally taxing for me to, to constantly be trying to figure out how do we steer this ship in the other direction, especially given all of the other um, um, variables that were at play right. like what was happening to the industry us getting not being extended by our label etc cetera, etc cetera. um and so suddenly it it dawns on me that law school might you know that's the thing I was going to do when I was way back in the day when I was doing my undergrad maybe this is a good way to take a break I had no intention of practicing law zero um I didn't even think at first I, I just studied to write the LSAT not even thinking I, seriously that I was going to apply to law schools, but this, this, then this mentality started to happen throughout where I thought, well, if I'm already writing the LSAT, I may as well apply. Right. And so then when I get accepted to some law schools, then the thinking is, well, maybe, I mean, is it kind of a waste for me to get this opportunity and not take it? And so then I go to law school, um, And again, during law school, I'm not focused on, I I don't believe I'm going to practice law. I I honestly went there thinking this is a great learning experience for me. I'll have a break from being fully immersed in band world all the time. And then I'll come back out of it and we'll focus on the band again. And the other guys were down with it. Um, The bass player started his own sort of, it was like a cover band basically. Um, And Sean started doing solo projects. Uh, and releasing records under that name. And so then law school ends. And again, I'm thinking, this is, I'm not going to go and get uh, admitted to the bar. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to article. I'm not going to become a lawyer. Although right at the end of the window for me to possibly get an articling position, I kind of had panic set in for a second. And again, that thought of, am I doing something really dumb here where I've, I've, Run. The I've run three quarters of a marathon and I'm not going to finish it. And so I quickly send applications out and got an articling position. Um, and so then I do that again, thinking I'm not going to practice, but now I can if I want to down the road. Right. I didn't stay with the 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 entity that I articled with because again I'm focused on music now. But I'll just hang up a shingle and say i'm an entertainment lawyer and i can there is stuff that i've learned now that's applicable i took courses focused on stuff that relates back to my music career to circle back around to what you'd asked earlier because of my lack of business sense early on in my career part of being in law school was about me understanding the business that i was immersed in and had not understood that well
1: and also i mean how lucky are you to have that reference
0: yeah, it's incredibly lucky. I and now I look at it, and there's a few of us who are music lawyers in Canada that, you know, we had careers as musicians or have careers as musicians. A couple of us still do it, and uh, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's tremendously um, unique. It's 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 such a weird thing that I'm able to have my feet in both of those worlds mm-hmm. and continue to do that. I'm again. Every, pretty consistently, I remind myself of that and remember to be
1: really appreciative of that fact. So the other thing you were involved in, and I'm not sure if you still are, was partly with SoCan and Songwriters Association. So you've kind of embedded yourself into the business of music. Um, tell me about that and, and why you chose to do that. So as I mentioned, my parents were um,
0: social justice advocates and they were really involved in the peace movement in Saskatoon, the, um, the anti-racism movement in Saskatoon, the anti-poverty movement in Saskatoon. There's some key sort of pieces that the, the values of those were instilled in me at a really young age. And so by the time I'm in law school, having had this music career um, and being involved uh, or, and studying subject matter that relates back to social justice issues and or music issues, this kind of natural cross-pollination happens um, and I get plugged into the Songwriters Association of Canada work um, just by dint of I think it was, I was doing a I think I was doing a research project for a digital music class and that's what made me become aware even of the existence of the Songwriters Association of Canada because they've been doing a lot of advocacy work again in response to, um, what file sharing had done to the industry, specifically how it had impacted uh songwriters who probably took the biggest hit of all mm-hmm. in terms of their ability to survive as as pros doing that um, and so, as I become aware of them and start interacting with them, I realize what great work they're doing and and it it just naturally fit with my understanding of kind of wanting to to advocate for and fight for um people who were put in unfair positions by dint of whatever, by dint of government decisions or, or public policy or how industry moved or technology or whatever it was, that advocating for um, the people who were impacted unfairly resonated really well with me, and, and it was just a kind of a natural fit.
1: What have you learned from being on this side? And I know you still play music. And music is still, I presume, a big part of your life. Yes. But what have you learned from becoming an entertainment lawyer and to represent the SOCAN and Songwriters Association? I've learned that the, the, our industry
0: is based on a very complicated um, framework and that if it weren't so complicated, um, that, that would be a really good thing for the people who are actually making the music, whether they're songwriters or performers or both. Um, I've learned that, you know, you some things are within the power of of the industry to do, but the vast majority of things, I think are not. You have competing interests built into that framework. Um, and while there are there is common ground for some of those competing interests to unify on, by and large, it's very difficult to get all of those different um, stakeholder segments to come together and understand each other's perspective and give ground on that because this is all against the backdrop of making money. This is a business. Mm -hmm. And so um, almost it's, it's a zero sum game to some extent. The only common ground is that those different stakeholder groups can agree to push for the zero sum to be higher so that everyone's getting more from that. But in terms of how it's how splits, happen internally in terms of revenue streams things are really out of whack Mm -hmm. um and and i'm and i'm like i said it's it's incredibly complicated and i think incredibly the biggest challenge i think for our industry is figuring out how to rectify that
1: do you think that's possible
0: i think it's possible i think um i think disruption can play a role so maybe peer-to-peer file sharing was the first wave of disruption that allowed for some of these conversations to start happening. Um, I think the industry didn't respond quickly enough and well enough to file sharing. They didn't take the proper tack. Not that I knew that any better at the time, but looking back in retrospect, it's like, okay, instead of fighting that new technology, had you embraced it, would that have been much better for the bottom line yeah, because the same thing happened when audio cassettes came out. The same thing happened when CDs came out or CD recordable CDs came out. This notion existed within the industry that, Oh, this is going to undercut our sales. This is terrible. We got to, what are we going to do? And luckily there were smart enough people involved. They said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to embrace those technologies, do it better than anyone else can. And, put it out there and have another sort of golden age of reselling the stuff we already sold to people in some instances on this new format. They didn't do that with the internet. They didn't do that with digital distribution until it was too late. And so I think the recovery from that has, that's why it's taken so long. Um, I'm hopeful that the fear of what file sharing did to the industry will be a powerful motivator for trying to find the right balance internally I, I wouldn't bet on it but I'm hopeful
1: okay which is a good thing yeah. so tell me being a lawyer I know it's different because it can't compare to opening up for the Rolling Stones but are you passionate about what you do? I think I'm
0: passionate about it in some instances and less passionate about it in other instances I think there's nothing as reward I had a client just released a a, a, an album yesterday and his manager wrote to me the night before as finally we had gotten all the strands together that we needed to and he just wrote me this really nice thank you message and said some really nice things to me about the work I'd done on on making sure that everything was in place for that release and at that moment I don't know passion is the right word but I certainly at that moment I felt something akin to that feeling I have of when I'm on stage and someone I know someone is really enjoying the music we're making that sense of feeling validated and that feeling like what you did someone appreciates what you did in terms of how it impacted them and yeah I think that that again back to that positive reinforcement thing Mm -hmm. there's there's those feelings they're, they're you may not be able to bottle them but man they sure provide great fuel
1: I'm sure. And I just think that having that perspective and having gone through what you've gone through, as a musician, and now you're helping musicians, I mean, that's pretty cool. It's a
0: it's a great feeling. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great feeling to to connect with musician clients, and knowing that we understand each other in a way that I couldn't have understood them if I was not also. Yeah, yeah someone who had been in their shoes and still is in their shoes in many instances. It's a, uh, it, it feels like a very full circle moment. And yeah, I, I think it's, it's part of what keeps me doing it, you know, with the pedal to the metal kind of thing, like full speed
1: ahead. I know it's not fair to stereotype, but I know that in some ways, in my dealings with musicians, a lot of them are not business minded. They're artistic and, and they're very good at what they do, but business is not, like it just doesn't come naturally to some people. Yeah. Was that ever an issue with you? Yes. It doesn't sound like it, but...
0: It was. It definitely was. I think early on, I used to have this... I had this framework in my brain and would tell anyone who would listen that I look at at business and um, art as being two opposite ends of, of, a, of a pole and or of a spectrum. And so the more you're focused on the business side of things, the less you're able to dedicate towards art and the less artistic it is yeah, yeah. and vice versa um, now I don't think that's true although I think there's something interesting about that and I think for some people that's true I think now I see, I see generations, a couple of generations of musicians who fully understand that this is about entrepreneurship as much as it is about creativity and this is about branding as much as it is about great songs which kind of makes me sad in a way um but I also admire the fact that they know that at an age that I didn't when I was their age I didn't get that at all and it was still true then I don't know if it was to the same extent but it was still true I just didn't know and didn't care I was we were literally those guys that were like as cliche as this sounds for us it was literally just about the music
1: right but I mean in in a lot of ways it served you well I mean, You know what I mean? Because I can see how disappointing it might be when, when sales dropped or when, when you got dropped by the label. But you went to places that most people don't get to experience. And, and you know, that's from the small band in the basement to what you saw and what you did. It's pretty amazing.
0: <laughs> Word that I could go and tell 22-year-old me that, you're, yeah. you're 100% right.
1: So I wonder, having gone through what you've gone through and also being on the other side in a way now of of being a lawyer um how has that affected your passion for playing because i saw you play a month ago whatever and and you had a very enthusiastic crowd who were and i don't know how many of them knew any of that material because it was your brand new it was brand new yeah like you did your cd release party played mainly your new cd and people were just like they were hanging on like yeah, it was like they a, were into it was,
0: it. it. was a really great feeling. And it, it was a unique gig. It's interesting that that was the gig that you got to see because we're playing stuff that we aren't familiar with ourselves. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like some of those songs we had played maybe two or three times when we recorded them, that's it. Right, Never played them live. And so more so than any other show I've ever done, I think, and, and I think Sean would say the same and our bass player would too, Darren, that we were really so focused on remembering the parts and remembering what happens and just making sure we played the songs correctly. (laughs) um, That it was a much different experience than our usual shows, which is, you know, there's so much muscle memory involved in those that it's kind of, you play with reckless abandon. Um, But yeah, I, I, I've, I'm now at a place where I do a fraction of the shows in a year that I used to do. um, But I probably get more out of doing those shows now than I ever did. A year of shows now gives me more in terms of fulfillment and sense of accomplishment and sense of contentment than doing a year of shows when I was 25.
1: With the new album, I presume you're going to be supporting that a little bit next year. Is that the plan? Yeah, the plan is we do um,
0: some some festival one-off kind of things throughout the spring and summer. And then come fall, winter, we start doing more... um, tour-like activities. I don't know that we'll do the full coast-to-coast all-in-one-run kind of tour. Right. You know, it's playing to a half-empty bar on a Monday night. I mean, this, It's fine. We've done that a whole bunch. But I also feel like it's unfair to fans. If, if someone wants to see you and they have a job and they have kids, it's yeah. like, are you going to play in a club that your show starts at 11 p.m. on Tuesday night? Most people who have been our fans... Probably won't be able to come to that, and mm-hmm. so I think we're going to try to approach this and craft it a bit differently, and we're going to try to make it a little bit more uh, accessible to the people who are our fans and who've you know are probably similar to us in terms of their age, are probably similar to us in terms of their lifestyle, and yeah, and we'll see. It might be soft seaters, it might be theater type shows, um, or some kind of hybrid, some kind of combination. But yeah, we're going to try to make it so that we can go see. Those fans,
1: and is your passion for music the same now?
0: Yeah, i i I think it. That's a really tough question. Is my passion for music the same as it was? In some ways, it's more, and in some ways, it's less. I think it's it's less in that being a musician doesn't define me anymore, and so not having that as my sole point of self identity. Um, necessarily takes away from my passion for it in some way but I think it's more in terms of I get more out of and appreciate more that part of my life than I ever had
1: previously and so in that sense I'm very passionate about it more than I was well judging by the response that people had for that CD release party it was something else you know, and it, it look like you guys were having fun, but I mean, to see a, a whole room full of people who really never heard the material or weren't really familiar with the material and they were just right into it.
0: It was a special night. We, uh, we had initially thought, okay, we're, it's, we're eight years after our last release. We need to remind the industry that a, we exist. Right. And B what this project is, is about. Cause this album is again, <laughs> different than all the other ones. <laughs> but,
1: but, Going back more to your blues roots, I presume. Absolutely, I mean, this a- is mo- the most,
0: um, the most overtly blues record we've made, mm-hmm. and that's on purpose. It has a lot to do with what's happening with Sean in terms of his what he's playing and how he's playing these days. Um, but there's also a very conscious. Um, decision making process that led to us doing this where we said you know we need to I want to go back and make a blues record we've always talked about it we've never fully committed to it at this stage it doesn't matter we can we can do anything we want Right. and so let's do this and we did and
1: do and you have expectations for this
0: or do you not think that way anymore I try not to think that way it's hard to 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 completely put that out of your brain so if I'm being really honest I would say yeah, I hope it gives me the opportunity to play more shows. I hope it gives me the opportunity to play um, in, in more places, in places we have been or haven't been in a long time. Um, it, I hope it gives us the opportunity to, to make this uh, a more prevalent part of our day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. Not back to what it used to be, but more than
1: what it has been. But is it easy at this stage in your life, with your family and also with your job, to be not a full-time musician but close to it yeah
0: yeah i think it's again this part is thought out sean and i both have kids and they're now my two and his one are both at the age where they're you know they're in school full-time they're kind of they're growing up pretty quickly it's it's less of a thing now where we feel like we have to be here all the time every day we still want to be really present in our kids lives and are and will be but there's a little bit of room now there's a little bit more we've gotten some time back and so we want that time to be taken up with
1: Widemouth Mason right well it's I really appreciate you doing this it's been a thrill talking to you I and education
0: you <laughs> uh, I've, I've, I really appreciate it. it's been an incredible interview thank you for all the great questions you asked well
1: thanks um my final question to you is is tell me what you've gotten out of music What's the best thing you've gotten out of music? The best thing I've gotten out of music
0: is the belief that I can do anything. And I think I would like my kids to have that belief. I'd like my bandmates' kids to have that belief. I'd like everyone to have that belief. But I know that that's not realistic. So I'm I'm incredibly thankful that at least I got that
1: okay so one more question if your kids came to you and said dad I want to be in a rock band
0: (laughs) I'd say yeah it's a great hobby
1: (laughs) (laughs) well at least you lived it I mean you know I know it's different times and I I think it's a lot tougher for a band starting out today absolutely but but what an amazing journey you've taken thank you so much for doing this thank you so much for having me